0: think at the heart of it is really like being generous with one another and thinking about reading as an act of service like how do we like read to learn and to help another person and not simply as entertainment how can we learn about each other as well
1: Caroline Have you ever heard the story about Toni Morrison and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain? I have not. <laughs> okay, I I had not either until recently. So, Huck Finn is historically one of the most commonly banned books in American schools and libraries because of racist stereotyping and flagrant use of the N-word. And the first time Toni Morrison read it as a child, she hated it. Like, she said she found it disturbing. Yeah, understandable. But here's the thing, Caroline. As an adult, Morrison's perspective on it evolved. So she decided to reread it, and she walked away really appreciating the richness of Twain's writing, the complexities of Huck's relationship with Jim, And she concluded that banning Huck Finn out of concerns, specifically that it might damage Black students, was nonsense. She described it as, quote, a purist yet elementary kind of censorship designed to appease adults, rather than educate children. Is that sounding familiar to these times that we're living in? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, especially in the context of all of the book banning and attempted book banning that's going on right now. Yeah. And I mean, what we are witnessing now is sort of the inverse of the Huck Finn bans, like books by Black authors, including Toni Morrison, are being targeted across the country for allegedly radicalizing students with critical race theory and heavy air quotes here, racism towards white people. Yes, we must protect the white children. (laughs) But, Caroline, Black students across the country have also been forming book clubs to resist those bans and read Black literature anyway. All of which is why today's conversation with our guest, Glory Edom, AKA Well-Read Black Girl, could not come at a more perfect time.
0: In community, we can talk about these things and we can have discourse and we can be uncomfortable. It's okay. Like That's part of the, the well-read process. It's like you're learning through things
2: and you're asking questions. Well-Read Black Girl's whole mission is to celebrate books by Black women and non-binary authors. Glory started it as an IRL book club, and it has since blossomed into a massive online community, two anthologies, and a new Well-Read Black Girl podcast. So
1: today, we're talking with Glory about the story of Well-Read Black Girl and the power of reading.
2: Growing up, Glory could be found exactly where you'd expect a future well-read Black girl to be.
0: Oh, God. I mean, I lived in the public library. Like, I <laughs> went to the, to the public library every day. I remember having, like, this, like, huge backpack, and I would go into the stacks, and I would, like— Throw everything in there. So I had like little women. I had like Judy Bloom. I did like Nancy Drew. I was obsessed with the babysitters club. <laughs> the library was such a part of my upbringing. And even thinking about civic participation, like I just was so, um, careful with my books. Like, I really just thought, like, this was such a big responsibility, like, taking something from this massive, beautiful building that had all these, like, library shelves and bringing it back to my home. Like, I wouldn't let my brothers touch it to get it sticky. Like, I didn't bend the pages. I was just so meticulous because it felt like a really big responsibility. And I think that kind of feeling and idea of, you know, like, how I take care of books and how I take care of other people. Like, I I do see that as a
1: very precious act. And that is something that started off very young. Glory was also very young when one day at the library, she stumbled across Maya Angelou's autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I
0: probably was like 11
1: or 12. um, And I was
0: um, (laughs) I was definitely judging a book by its cover. Like I didn't really understand what her story was going to be about, but I remember seeing the cover and she had like a head wrap on. Like she just looked like my mom or like Mm -hmm. an auntie or like like me. Like she felt like family. And I was like, oh, if I read the story, I'm going to like hear about this like black woman's life. And so like, like just like reading it and seeing her, just like her beauty and, and even her name, like her name is just, it sounds like so magical. Like the way it comes out of your mouth, like Maya Angelou. But my first reading, I did not really fully understand the magnitude of her life and the things that she had encountered. And then as I got older, I really saw how she developed her voice and was so, so um, just like so resilient, but also just like fearless. Like she just has such a profound audacity and like feeling of uh, self-assuredness that I was hoping to emulate in adulthood. I was like, I want to try all these things and take all these like really great risks, whatever that might look like. I wasn't sure how it would manifest, but um, she set that example for me for sure.
1: This is also reminding me of, I I believe you wrote an AP English paper on Maya Angelou and handed it in to your teacher who then told you like, oh, she's not a good writer and, and kind of like brushed it off?
0: Oh my God. Yes. Yes. This is notorious. But also I have to shout out. So this English teacher was actually amazing too. That's why I was so hurt by it. So when he was critical of Maya Angelou and what he was critical of was just her grammar, her use of grammar you know, and like dialect. So like, but but then I'm like, we just read Zora Hurston and clearly the dialect and how like she writes is, you know, intentionally different and like imitating uh, a Southern culture and a, a different voice, you know? So what's the difference with Maya Angelou? Like, why are we being so critical of how she's like phrasing things or if she puts like, a comma here or there, you know? So it was like one of these like moments of what is right? Like what like makes this, um, appropriate or not appropriate and I like had to take a stand to say like no and I felt like in that moment he was dismissing her intellect and her way of sharing the black experience and I took offense but it was also this moment of me like standing up and like really being like okay I have an opinion on this and I feel strongly and I'm going to voice it I was that motivated and moved by it cuz I was like who gets to say what's right? Like, who gets to say, like, this is, like, the way she writes is bad or good?
1: Well, connect the dots for us then between kind of those early formative experiences and when you get to college and you really start diving more into, like, Black feminist literature in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to attend Howard University or quite honestly, any historically, like, Black college is such a life-changing and very affirming experience. And I also, like, understood that I was, like, st- sitting in this space of just um, reverence, like, you know, knowing that, like, Zora Hurston attended Howard and, you know, t- Tony Morrison and all these, like, greats, you know. So automatically, I was like, I want to be part of this lineage. And I started reading the works of like Bell Hooks and Tony K. Bambara and Audre Lorde and reading it in a way that I was looking at the methodology of Black radical feminism and how it is like centered on liberation and just like collective empowerment and being very aware of where I sat at at my university and how I was like really looking to make change. And again, those the books that I read during that time really served as just a blueprint, a guide, Uh, a way of like being, you know, I don't, I don't think prior to that I had um, really decided what my ideology would be. Like I I wasn't calling myself a feminist. I don't think I was like, I had fully embodied it. But once I arrived at Howard's campus, that changed. And I knew that um, my identity as a Black woman is so vital to just like my, my whole being and embracing my multiple identities. I could be you know, voice my opinions and just like feel stronger about ideas that could seem like unconventional or even, uh, dare I say radical, right? Like it's like that idea of being surrounded by work that inspires you to, to be greater and to dream bigger was it, it just like it moved me and it made me see the power of words.
2: Mm. Okay. Could you define well
0: read? Oh, I love that question. So I define being well-read as a person who is curious and looks at words and books as a method of investigation. So whatever you're reading, you're like really taking it in. you're looking for substance, you're looking for... moments of pause and reflection, and it gives you an opportunity to ask questions. So I really think that curiosity is like key to being well-read. It's not simply just like reading words and repeating them verbatim and, you know, knowing all these scholarly texts, like that's great, but the the beauty of it is really having conversations and like building connections with people.
1: Yeah, we were going to ask kind of how that definition compares to maybe the, uh, like the The more traditional or literary idea of being well-read, which I feel like is very much focused on, like, quantity and, like, have you read the canon? Right, right, and and what is the canon? So you know, like, like growing up, you
0: know, that would have been Walt Whitman and a lot of like olded white men, and and like now it's like there's so much more. There's just so much more beauty and richness in literature. And I think of the canon. I'm thinking of Pachinko. You know, I'm thinking of uh, Toni Morrison. I'm thinking of women and people that have been largely underrepresented in literature, and now we. We have this beautiful, just like reshaping of it. um, And that's exciting for me.
1: We're going to take a quick break.
2: When we come back, Glory tells us how Well Read Black Girl started with a t shirt.
1: Don't go anywhere.
0: So I was given um, a, like a t-shirt by my partner um, and it was for my birthday and it said like well red black girl on it and this like t-shirt was my favorite thing and I wore it everywhere and people would see me out in Brooklyn and you know how Brooklyn is New York is just like this small, big world (laughs) where people will come up to you and talk to you. And I'm a chatty catty, so I welcome that kind of energy.
1: We're back with well-read Black girl, Glory Edom. And we got to describe this T-shirt because it was designed like a university logo. So you had well-read Black girl and big letters at the top and a crest with the names of Glory's favorite authors like Octavia Butler and Maya Angelou in it. So people would simply ask me where I got this t-shirt from when I'd be like, oh,
0: actually, yeah, like, you know, like my boyfriend made it for me. And um, it went from that to, okay, so like, what book are you reading? And I would always have something in my bag. And so I would like pull out J. California Cooper or, you know, Gloria Naylor. Because I, I tend to read, like reread a lot of like vintage um, classics by Black women. And so, you know, we would just start having conversations and talking about whatever we were reading at the time. And that happened more than enough times where I was like, there's something here. There's something special happening that um, I want to explore.
1: This was back in 2015. Glory decided to start a book club with some friends and made an Instagram for it. And that's how At Well Read Black Girl was born.
0: For the longest time, that Instagram handle was like my mom and like three girlfriends (laughs) from college. (laughs) You know, it was sincerely a book club, but the... The thing that changed was when I met Naomi Jackson. So Naomi Jackson had a new book coming out. It was called The Star Side of Bird Hill. I had read it and then went to a uh, a book signing with her at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn. And I just was so moved by the book. It's a really beautiful coming-of-age story with like different like moods and textures. It's just so delightful. And it was her first book. So in that moment, you know, I felt like this connection with her. I just asked her to, you know, I'm going to host a small book club. Would you be open to coming to the book club and, you know, talking to us about your work and about the book? And she accepted my invitation. And that, yes, really changed the trajectory of the organization and how I even thought about approaching people and asking them to participate.
2: Glory was emboldened to invite more Black women writers to speak at the book club. That first year, they had a slew of amazing debut authors, including Margot Jefferson, Caitlin Greenidge, Nicole Dennis-Ben, and more. We were
0: there from the beginning. Like, we were buying the books. We We were tweeting about it. We were, like, you know, at all the book signings, we were showing love. And I want to continue that energy of, like, supporting young, emerging Black writers and women of color from the very
2: beginning. Just two years after starting Well-Read Black Girl, Glory kickstarted the first Well-Read Black Girl festival, which is a full day of literary panels and workshops. The Kickstarter hit its fundraising goal in the first three days and swiftly sold out. The festival, by the way, is still going strong, and this past year, Gabrielle Union was the headliner.
1: Well, uh, I read in An interview you gave, I think it was last year, to Essence, that you avoid the language of giving voice to Black authors in terms of, like, describing what well-read Black girl is all about and instead describe it as giving space why is that distinction important to you? Because we have a voice. Everyone has a voice. You know, what we need is more
0: opportunity. What we need is more things for people to feel connected to and 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 more visibility and ways to amplify their work. Um, there's this kind of misconception that there's like, oh, there's not enough Black writers or, you know, there's like there's a lack of talent, which is not the case. There. are are so many incredible writers who are ready. They have books and proposals, and they just need an opportunity and they need someone to say like, hey, like this, this is important and it matters. And we want to help you succeed. Majority of the DMs and the questions I get are around that. They're like, how, how do I do this? Can you offer me direction? Can you introduce me to an agent? Can you like give me like tips on my book proposal? So those are the things that people are looking for, just the right opportunity and space to to grow and to, and also to make mistakes and ask questions. Like you don't have to come out of the gate perfect. You can have
1: space to, um, to ask for help. Another way Glory has made space for Black writers is through anthologies. In 2018, Glory curated her first anthology, Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves. Her second, on Girlhood, 15 Stories from the Well-Read Black Girl Library, was published late last year. We're curious about
2: your process for putting together anthologies. Like, how do you think about who your audience would be, what excerpts to include? Like, how how did you start to go about that?
0: <laughs> so the process of writing my first anthology was me starting with my own bookshelf, pulling out anthologies and reading stories that inspired me and and asking myself the question, you know, when did I first see myself in literature? With the second anthology on girlhood, I was really trying to explore the word girl. You know, I wanted to have like a love letter to my younger self. And I wanted to really look at coming of age stories because I don't think there's like enough that Really share the the black girl experience, and some of the stories are about sisterhood, and they're about romantic love, or um, what it's like to you know to be at a school dance, or the relationship with your mother. And I was looking at the threads of who who we are as young people and how we
2: come to develop our identities. Glory started to look back at stories she read as a young girl, and she kept coming back to author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston, particularly the obstacles Hurston faced as a young girl. There weren't a lot of opportunities for women, let alone black
0: women, to excel. And she did everything that she wanted to do, if not more. And she wrote this, you know, this incredible book that we also reference and has become part of the literary canon. You know, their eyes were watching God. Um, so I thought about Zora Neale Hurston, and I thought about her girlhood. Like, who was she as a small girl? What did she dream about? Um, and so with those two anthologies, they really started off as like really big questions that I was trying to answer. And I thought they would have like a universal appeal to anyone who was reading them. And they, they would also offer, and I've said this phrase a couple of times, but <laughs> a restructuring of the of this canon that we always refer to. But new stories, new ideas, new authors that we can inject and uh, just create a new precedent for what we say when we think of... Um, like high literature, you know, like, and I say that in a playful way, because what is that, right?
2: We're going to take a quick break.
1: When we come back, we've got a lightning round of reading questions for Glory.
2: Stick around.
1: We're back with Glory Edom.
2: Okay, so we have a couple rapid-fire reading questions for you. Okay. Here we go. IRL book versus digital copy.
0: Ooh. In real life. I need a physical. (laughs) I need to hold it. (laughs) Best time of day to read. Oh, I'm a nighttime reader. I read before bed. And Mm. And when I was living in Brooklyn, I read on the train all the time. That was like my favorite. That's what I missed. Mm -hmm. I'm now in DC, so I have to, I think I'm gonna find a new way. Maybe I'll just get on the DC Metro and like hop around just to read.
2: (laughs) Okay, best place
0: to read. Ooh. Okay. I have like a a very cozy chair. Like I always dedicate like a chair. Like you got to make your like spot. You got to have like your little easy boy, a spot in the sofa that's like nice, dented in. You need your
1: own chair, a special chair that you make your own. I got maybe a curveball for you. Reading a brand new book or rereading an old fave?
0: Oh, I'm a rereader. I love, like, reading something again and again and again.
1: Number one tip for cultivating a reading habit. Scheduling time. You can
0: schedule time to read. You can put a little... No memo on your phone or put it in your calendar and say, you know, I'm going to read 20 minutes a day. It's going to be part of like my morning pages or my journal or right before bed. I personally read before bed. Um, It it relaxes me, kind of winds me down. And sometimes I even put like a a page number like, okay, I want to read 10 pages um, and I want to get to like this part. But I'm also a little like compulsive (laughs) but it helps me it helps me track my reading and because i also take a lot of notes when i'm reading so it helps me like okay i want to get to this page joining a book club or starting your own oh my gosh well (laughs) you know i love a good book club if you are going to start a book club you have to be organized and you have to be consistent because people will like, like not finish or they'll, you know, they'll come for the wine. You have to be organized for starting, but joining, I feel like it's a little bit more like relaxing. You don't have to do the facilitation or organizing or like, you know, send out the Eventbrite or send out the email. I feel like joining is a lot more fun. Be a joiner. I, I'm a, <laughs> that's a philosophy for life. Join all the things, especially <laughs> book clubs. And finally, what's What's a book that we should read next? There's so many books. Oh, okay. You know what? I just started this book. That's really fun. It's called Yinka, Where's Your Husband? And it's all about this woman who's basically, it's like a romantic comedy, dramedy, and she's British, Nigerian, which is also fun because I love a good like UK ish like Bridget Jones kind of vibe and her aunts are always just like talking about how she's single and she goes into all these antics about how she could like find her husband but also maintain her own kind of agency but it's funny it's like really funny um and I love this idea of like this Nigerian girl just going out in the world and subverting tradition and being her own
1: self well glory that concludes our rapid fire round (laughs) thanks for playing Okay, Glory, we're, we're
2: done with the rapid fire, but we're not done with the advice yet. So what do you think about grappling with that idea of I should be reading this? I should pick this up. What advice do you have for people who are grappling with the pressure of the shoulds on their to-read list?
0: I think that that kind of should-be-reading mentality is welcomed in spaces where you have the space and time to read. So if you are a college student, if you're a grad student, and you can sit with a text and kind of meditate and be in conversation with other students, or if you're, like, in a very engaged book club, I think that should is, like, it can be a joyful experience if you, like, you know, bring that perspective of I'm, like... Learning through this, and I'm not sure what it is, but I'm going to try. But that trying requires space. So if you don't have a lot of space and time to do that, and your schedule is already like packed and to the brim, I do not recommend doing the should. I think you should read what brings you joy and like fills your life and will be a pleasant affirming experience. But if you have space to kind of explore texts and be in community with others, then take that step. Like reading cast is an incredible incredible experience. But I found it much more joyful when I was reading it with a friend and talking with her continuously on a group text and asking her questions and then referring to our JSTOR accounts to get, you know, more, more just like detail, you know, like I think more of the the should should be done
1: in community. Kind of on the flip side of um the idea of, you know, giving some space and time to maybe some of the should reading, some of the deeper reading. I'm very curious to get your thoughts on what I'm calling a performative reading on social Mm. media. And by that, I'm I'm really thinking about like uh, the scourge of white ladies posting like pics of like a a how to be an anti-racist with like a caption, like doing the work, which maybe they are doing the work. Maybe I'm just terribly (laughs) cynical. Um, But I'm curious what you think about that element of our current kind of reading culture.
0: That's, that's so funny. My
1: like pet peeve is like
0: when people post their to-be-read list or they're like Book stack for the month and they have like eight books. And I'm just like, wait, there is no way. Like on average, I can read like two books a month. And I'm like really reading consistently, you know, maybe three if I'm, if the book is like under 100 pages or something. But it's just wild to me. I'm like, do you have no other jobs? Do you have no (laughs) other life? Like, like you can, there's no way you're reading like eight books of like intense, plot driven, like, no. So I think there's a lot of, just like the books look pretty and it's aesthetically pleasing to post online. Like we get it, but please stop saying you actually read those books. Um, in terms of just like this performative reading and people, I think, I don't know. I think a majority of people are really trying their best. And I think a lot of people need, um, just like extra validation. Like we're lonely. We want to feel like we're making a difference. And instead of like going out to volunteer at a shelter or doing something that might be more meaningful or have a greater impact, people find that sharing something on social media equates like uh, activism light, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I would prefer people actually did the work of like finding ways to change policies and, you know, like volunteer at their local library and do things that make a a greater impact in their communities versus just trying to post things on social. I always say that reading is just the beginning.
2: Now, after years of championing other people's books, Glory is adding herself to the canon. Her memoir, Gather Me, a memoir in praise of the books that saved me, is coming out in November.
0: It's been a life-changing experience. It's, it is hard as fuck to write a <laughs> memoir. If anybody thinking about it out there, considering it, it is hard. You should have like a therapist on like speed dial. And I just learned that like I can write this memoir. I'm going to set it down. I'm going to publish it and it will no longer be a part of me. And I also think as Well Read Black Girl, the festival, the podcast, the books, like they're all works of art. They're all works of service. And I need to create that separation so I can see them clearly and allow them to
1: grow. And they've definitely grown, y'all. That Well Read Black Girl Instagram, you know, the one that only her mom and a few friends followed for so long, now has more than 400,000 followers. You can be by yourself reading and like you can get lost in a
0: story and you can feel like part of something larger than yourself, you know. So anyone who participates in the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, the, the beauty of it is really having conversations and like building connections with people.
2: more about glory head over to at well black girl on instagram or listen to her brand new podcast well read black girl with glory edom wherever you listen to podcasts
1: y'all can find us on instagram facebook and twitter at unladylike media you can also drop us a line at hello at unladylike.co and you can support caroline and me directly by joining our patreon Over there, you'll get instant access to nearly 100 existing bonus episodes and a new bonus episode every week, including last week's conversation on polyamory throuples and one throuple in particular. We have a lot of thoughts. We need to hear your feels. You can find it all over at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior
2: producer of Unladylike. Michelle O'Brien is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marante transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Jared O'Connell. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media.
1: This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger.
2: And Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week... If we want to end sexual harm, we have
0: to be willing to call people in. We have to be willing to, you know, talk about the harmful impacts of their behavior. But if we cancel people, if we just say, like, I want nothing to do with you, I don't stand for this, they actually don't ever learn.
2: It's another edition of Ask Unladylike, where we open up our mailbag to bring you our unladylike advice. For this episode, we've invited back criminal justice professor Alyssa Ackerman. She's bringing her perspective on what to do if a person you love is accused of sexual assault and what to do if your friend is dating an alleged abuser.
1: Y'all don't want to miss this episode, so make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem?
0: Get (laughs) unladylike. Uh, yes. And I'm like a feeling like I give no fucks. I'm in my forties. Like let's do this. Like <laughs> I think that's like my my unlady like convention. Like I don't give a fuck. I'm gonna do what I want when I want it. And it's been working for me. So I'm gonna keep doing that. <laughs> Stitcher.